Okay, great souls, we are in the home stretch here. We have three classes before I stop teaching for about two months, and it looks like we're going to just get right in there. We might have to stay till 11 o'clock on the third class, but we'll finish. Pardon me? Exactly, compared to eternity. We'll just see how it goes. <laughs> but we'll, I'm sure it's going to work out just perfectly without any problems. Okay, so does anybody have any questions left over from previous cycles, or shall we start right in? Just throat clearing. Okay. Um, we are now at sutra number, book number four, sutra number two. The transformation of one species into another is brought about by the flow of prakriti, prakriti, primordial nature. The question is, how did nature produce so many different species? The answer is that nature itself is in constant flux, patna re. As the ancient Greeks put it, all is flux. Divine bliss itself is ever new. Um, Reading this, I was thinking of the um, just of the whole, it's, this isn't about evolution exactly, but it sort of implies, you know, how, how is it that things, that species keep changing and every, everything keeps being different. The, the whole attempt to make it seem like it's a random physical cycle is not um, such a likely one. I mean, I'm not going to, Swamiji spent a lot of time in his book Out of the Labyrinth and others just talking about the theory of evolution. It's not something I want to speak of. But there's an aspect of how the force of nature keeps things changing that is, has always been interesting me, to me in terms of karma and reincarnation, reincarnation part of it. Um, the way Swamiji explains it, in I think it's in the 14 steps, the Raja Yoga course, it's only one sentence or so. But he talks about how we manifest in the form, physical form, that is the, is the appropriate vehicle for the karmic pattern that we have that we need to express. Another way of saying it is we, we, we get an opportunity that allows us to express whatever awareness we have and gives us the opportunity to expand that awareness. At the beginning, meaning as we go through, through the plants and through the animal stages, there is this ever new renewing of spirit where, so it seems, we just simply get pushed forward. Swami said, you know, plants, animals, they don't have individual karma uh, until they're perhaps much more highly evolved, excuse me, higher animals. There, that wasn't so bad. Um, Maybe by the time they get to be very advanced dogs or horses, which, or monkeys, which are the higher animals, they might begin to differentiate themselves, but mostly they just move as groups. We were having a discussion about trees in a, a different setting, and Chidambar, who has taken care of trees all his life, just talked about how the, the trees don't have individual identities. It's not like, oh, I want to live, so you have to die. It's like if, if somebody has to go, it doesn't matter if it's them. I mean, if the road needs to be cleared, they're just sort of in it for the good of all. And um, there's also these, these studies people have figured out lately about how the roots of trees underground, they talk about how they form these communities, how trees share nutrients um, all over and that they'll, they'll pass nutrients long distances 
to uh, the trees that might need them in their group. And somebody was talking to me. This was in, it was in New Zealand, but I can't remember who was talking about it. But just talking about how this tree here may actually be feeding trees that are, you know, an enormous distance away because they have this this sense of group identity that they're always working with. But the the drawback of that is that then no individual tree can suddenly manifest this extraordinary dynamic willpower or this great receptivity and consciously separate itself out from the rest of the forest. It, it's not, they don't have a nervous system and there's no possibility of having that much awareness in the nervous system and the form of a tree. I mean, among other things, they can't go anywhere. They can't see the world. <laughs> you know, they're just right where they are. So, as you can see, as you move from, well, starting from minerals, because Master said his consciousness went all the way back to the crystal, to the diamond, you can see how each time you get a little more uh, ability to experience life and a little more awareness. I mean, a, a crystal, is, it, it, can't, it doesn't move, it just sits there. I mean, it has a certain vibrancy, but at least the trees and the plants, there's more happening. But then, what happens first automatically is that one simply reaches the limits of that form's ability to express awareness. And since we have to keep it progressing as a jiva all the way to infinite awareness, that tree just finishes itself. It, It can't go any farther. I mean, redwoods live for hundreds, centuries, even sometimes, you know, a few thousand years. But there just comes a point when you're done. And as you are pushed forward on the evolutionary scale, you, you in, in each time in between, you manifest what you need in order to be everything that you can be at that point. Until we finally get to the point where we get to have a human body. And what happens when you have a human body, as Master explains it, is that that all human beings have a nervous system that is capable of having infinite awareness. Which is it's just, I don't know exactly you know, how to describe that, but that's how Master says it, that with the, we have, with, the, with the spine that we have, Swami often talks about how like a dog, um, even though the dog and the horses and the monkeys, Master said, are the most advanced of animal species, but the dog's spine extends way out at the bottom. And a dog's way of expressing himself is from the bottom of the spine, right? It's from the tail. That's where all the energy is and so, you know, if a human being wagged its tail like that, it would look uh, distorted. A lot of human beings do wag their tails a lot. It's not really such a, an uplifting thing to see. But mostly our consciousness or our potential for consciousness comes from the frontal lobe of the brain, whereas the dogs don't have this forehead like we do and this brain like we do. All of their energy is just out there in the enthusiasm of the other pole of the thing. I mean, dogs are nice. It's not like they don't have any redeeming qualities, but these are just the objective facts. So after a while, after being a dog for as long as you have been, or a horse or a monkey, and I don't know whether you have to do all of them or not. These are details I just don't know. You finish. You just, you got more, you've got more awareness than that nervous system will allow you to express. And so the dog body dies or the horse body dies, and you're, you're finally ready to get a human body. But the first human body you have will probably be in a context where you're still 
closer to the animal level. And that doesn't mean you're animalistic. It just means you may be living in a very primitive culture. You may be you know, living among people who, who don't wear clothes and still have highly evolved sensitivities like the animals have. You know, and, and they can still be lovely, harmonious souls, but they're, they're not going to learn foreign languages and travel in many countries and study religions and talk about philosophy. It's just they're not able to do that. They're still living. And Master even said you can kind of go back and forth a little bit in that transition. You know, human-animal, human-animal, and then you kind of get, get it all together and you start up that human evolutionary scale. Now, you don't really need to change forms. I mean, you don't need to change species because all the potential is there. Now, we just have to develop the potential. That's why they say it takes, whatever, five to eight million lives or whatever it is to even get to the human level. And then after that, fascinatingly, there is no timetable. Because now, suddenly, we have sufficient awareness to use our willpower to go forward or backward. Whereas animals don't really have the developed awareness to be able to to go forward or backwards. They're just gradually drawn forward. That's why a, a, a bloodthirsty tiger is not really bloodthirsty. He's just doing his job. Whereas a bloodthirsty human is creating bad karma for himself because he has the potential awareness to know the difference. So once we get to the human level, we can start developing all sorts of likes and dislikes and we can go forward or back or just wander around for as long as we want to. Literally, we can wander a whole day of Brahma and then just go back into the unmanifested state and come out and start all over again, which is disconcerting to some people. But there it is. And so now we can... um, decide for ourselves how much awareness we're going to have. And then our our incarnations are determined by opportunity, by good karma, by exposure to right teachings, by the privileges of wealth, you know, all those things, which are all very positive. It's very positive to be born into wealth, for example, or at least sufficient wealth, first of all, because you don't have to struggle just to survive. But also, you get to find out at a young age, you know, how much satisfaction there is in material wealth. Otherwise, you may have to spend your whole life trying to get enough to find out. I had a friend who was raised in such a wealthy family that he didn't actually even know that people did laundry. He just just would drop his dirty clothes and they would reappear folded in his drawer. <laughs> I mean, he gradually, and he actually rebelled against all of it and you know, went out to live in a shack in the woods with no indoor plumbing just because of the the contrast. But... At the, on the other hand, I mean, another friend of mine who's actually her mother died when she was relatively young and she more or less became her father's hostess. It wasn't, I mean, it was a, it was a healthy relationship, but in, in her teenage years, she was more or less running the household and she had his credit cards and could do anything she wanted. And by the time she was 20, she was done. You know, it was like, it wasn't her own husband, but she'd had the whole experience of what it was to be a well-to-do matron and she was finished. You can see that's very, very good karma. Because otherwise, a whole incarnation goes by. You're 65 and you finally figure out, wow, this didn't really work for me, did it? Can't always just start over. Okay? So I think those are very important things to really understand because when people often ask us, you know, sort of how does all that work? And it also helps us to understand, what am I really doing in this body? The point of being in this body is to reach the limits of awareness that this body will give me. 
And those limits of awareness are not physical. They're just entirely based on the vrittis in the spine. And so we can always, and this is why, why it's very important to preserve your body and not just throw it away, because it, it's a, it has an unlimited potential. And merely because it becomes a little sick or a little tired or a little crippled in certain ways, people nowadays are very casual. Oh, well, just, you know, euthanasia, why not? But very often there's a t- tremendous amount more in terms of expansion of awareness that can be gained you know, after the physical um, perfection of it is distorted a little. I don't want to speak too strongly because everything is an individual case, but you know, the, the uh, uh, gross materialism and complete atheism of our age is, is causing serious spiritual issues. Because people, given that we perceive everything in material terms, well, the body's not working anymore, just like an old car, just throw it away. You know, I've outgrown this dress, I'll just throw it away. There's no other purpose understood there. And sometimes, I believe, you know, the end of life experiences are your final exam, the culmination of the whole effort. You know, who am I? What is real? Where does my happiness come from? What kind of inner reserves do I have? How can I keep... Um, loving and expanding my heart and remaining joyful when all my usual avenues are taken away from me. And to just at that point n- not allow the challenge to play itself out um, is unfortunate, I think. Um, and probably in many cases very unfortunate. But I, it's, it's a personal matter, so I can't say. At the same time, given the spiritual dimension of life, when it's over, it's over. <laughs> You know, the body's done. Just let it go. And there's no... Uh, I mean, what people do now is just so bizarre. When uh, this elderly man that I knew, he was like in his 90s, and he just... He quit. He was finished. He just got into bed and he stopped eating. He was done. And in more sane times, he would have just had his friends come over and say goodbye and just let himself go. Instead, they haul him to the hospital. They give him antidepressants. You know, it's just like, oh, please. He's not depressed. He's 90. He's just done. You know, when my father, um, he really was finished, but they, he lived in Southern California. He was being cared for. They called us up and said, you know, he's just gone to bed and he doesn't want to get up. I said, that's fine. Just, just leave him there. And he didn't want to eat and he didn't want to do anything. In about three days he passed. But just, you know, sure, he knows, he's finished. Let him, let him finish. Because all, right. all is change. Nothing happens except you leave it and then you go get another one. <laughs> okay? Any questions or comments about that? So then now we have these marvelous, we have some marvelous uh, sutras today. Four, three. Incidental qualities do not affect a person's spiritual nature. They must simply be removed as a farmer removes obstacles to a flow of water. Um, I was reading today about, Swami was talking about the transition when after Rajasi died at Self-Realization Fellowship and he was the president and then another president had to be selected. Um, He was speaking to the often often told story that Diamata was appointed by Master, but Swamiji says in fact she wasn't. Rajasi was was the successor and then when he became incapacitated, and then when he died, another successor had to be chosen. So they, I mean, a, a president had to be chosen. And Durga Mata, 
who was a, a devoted disciple of Master, was considerable, considerably senior to Dayamata at that time. Uh, however, Durgamata had her job at Mount Washington had been to personally care for Rajasi. So she was not a manager. She wasn't involved in the middle of anything. She had been his, his attendant. That's what Master had wanted her to do. He, he'd had her do lots of other things, but she was never in the center. Dayamata was running the office, and when Rajasi became ill, she in many ways managed everything. She was skilled as a manager in that respect. But Durga was senior. So, as Durga Mata tells it in her book, the presidency was first offered, offered to Durga, as Swamiji put it, with the sure knowledge that she would say no. <laughs> in her book, what she says is that she felt that her life was so tied to both Rajasi and Masters that now that Master died and Rajasi had died, she thought she was going to die very soon. And so, she says the reason she said no was that she just didn't think that SRF should go through the death of the next president so quickly. In fact, she lived decades. But uh, that time she thought she was going to die. So, um, but, but Swamiji put it differently. He said, basically, she had no tact. She was not a diplomat at all. That she was very peppery, he said. And she spoke her mind, and she spoke her mind very bluntly. And she never sort of paid any attention to it. She just said what she wanted to say. And he gives us the example when someone borrowed her harmonium and it came back with the, uh, a circle of red on all the C notes. Somebody had used fingernail polish to mark it because they were learning to play. And Durga was quite upset and, and accused the monks of ruining her harmonium. Swami pointed out that it was fingernail polish, which is the kind of thing a woman would think of more than a man. But Durga just very dismissively said, the men cause all the trouble around here, like this. Which, you know, you can't be a president if you're going to incline, incline to say things like that. And he said it was just an example. He said she was a great soul. Master said she was second to Gyanamata in realization. So there was no question about her spiritual stature. But this was her personality. And she wasn't suited to be in charge of the organization. Or as Swamiji said, she would have been difficult for anybody to work under. But it was just an aspect of her nature. And it just, it wasn't even a fault. It was just a fact. And, and the, the difference between what people consider to be pleasing personalities and what actually matters to God, they're very, very different. And this is important also for us to understand. I know Swamiji has said to me, because I've had a tendency to be too blunt, too brusque, and as he put it to me, not always weighing the impact of my words before I say them. I'm going to put some of this in the past tense, but it has been an issue in my life. But he very interestingly said to me at one point, it's not necessarily a fault, he said. It's a fact, but not necessarily a fault. But in your position, it's a fault. You know, given that you do have to work with a lot of people and everything you say has impact, now it becomes a fault. But you see the difference? It's, it was a very interesting nuance when I actually captured it too. Of course, it's been my good karma to be in a situation where it, it, it keeps circling back to me and I have to learn because it's a lack of awareness on my part. You see, the fault is the lack of awareness. And that's something definitely to work on. But the other is just a personality characteristic, which is so minor 
I mean, it's even though it can be look enormous in human life, from God's perspective, what does it matter? Do you see how different that is? And that's, that's, that helps us because it's, it's a way to be a little easier about these things that happen with us. It's also a way to relate to each other. Swamiji's ability to just see what was positive about people. There's one person who was very, very difficult and just always was causing trouble, meaning upsets, disharmonies. Swami said, but, but they try so hard. He said, that wins me every time. And once the fault is, is recognized, you know, the sincerity of the resolution to change is so deep. That's all that matters. Because those are the qualities. I, I'm going to say one more thing about this. I, I mentioned this in Sunday service, but I thought about this more deeply later. I was talking to Chidambar about it. Um, Swamiji has said on many occasions, one particular master's birthday, I remember he said it with a particular power. He said, God is pleased when you bring to him your successes, but he's more pleased when you bring him your failures. Now, I've heard that a lot of times, and gee, that sounds pretty, doesn't it? You know, and I've, I've worked hard to try to understand what that means, but I, I coupled it with something that I just found that Swami had said when he was talking, and I'd said this in Sunday service, that something had happened in Swami's life where circumstances really went against him, and he was facing a very difficult, um, just chaotic interpersonal situation. But he said he was completely detached from it in the sense that it, it just didn't, it was going on around him. He was very much involved in it, but it didn't touch him. And then he, he commented, Master is pleased that I am so free. And then I realized, of course, what would Master care about? He wouldn't care about because he doesn't care. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It only matters what you become through what happens to you. So you've you know, set out on some fantastic enterprise and made terrible misjudgments and it turns out to be a disaster and, and that's your failure that you have to then place at the feet of God. Why is he so pleased? Because you're free. Because whatever has happened to you, you haven't held it to the ego. And there's a stronger inclination among many people to hold their failures to the ego than there is to hold their successes. But all that Master cares about is that we become spiritually free. And as Swamiji also says, like a conscientious doctor, he doesn't hesitate to put the scalpel into the wound if he needs to. He'll excise the cancer. And the doctor is not concerned that when he puts that scalpel in, you're going to bleed and hurt. It doesn't make any difference to him. He's saving your life. So when Master puts the scalpel of karma into the cancer of our delusions and cuts them out, the fact that we're bleeding doesn't make any difference to him. And if we, as good patients, so to speak, can be free enough to just hand it over and not feel that we have to hold it. You see how much more pleasing that is to him? Anyway, finally, I hope it helps you because I've heard that so many times and I have to say, frankly, even though I could talk a good story about it, I never really got it. But freedom is everything. And all, the, whole, the whole game, and I'll mention this later too, the whole, all karma is generic. It doesn't really matter at all what the circumstances are. And this, the sutras that come, I'll start speaking of that a little here. The sutras that come are all about once you're in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi and you start reviewing all that karma and how you recognize it has nothing to do with you, 
Because it, it isn't, as we imagine, when we're ego involved with it and identified with it, oh, in this lifetime I lost my children, this, this life I'm, I was bankrupt, this time I was the king of England, this time I did a great job, I was a fantastic singer, you know, all these different things. There's this yeah, nine-year-old girl, you've probably seen it on the internet, it's been passed around. This nine-year-old girl, self-taught, has an exquisite operatic, operatic soprano. Just absolutely gorgeous. That's without looking at the fact that she's nine years old, you just hear the voice. It is beautiful, fully mature. Karen was saying, you know, most children just don't have the pipes. And this woman, just, this girl, just has the voice of a, of a very, very skilled woman. I can just see her in her past life. She must have worked so hard to get there. She just said, I absolutely am not starting over. <laughs> but I saw this little interview with her. She came out through one of those talent things that they do all over the world now. And she talked about how she would often just stand and imagine all her hundreds and hundreds of fans, you know, just absolutely remembered. Just there it was. And this is who she thought she was. And as a young child, she never had even any lessons. She just started listening to opera and started imitating it. And at nine, she's, she was performing with orchestras. And I mean, I don't really know what's going to happen. And she didn't even have that sort of sweet child voice. She just has a total mature singing voice. Now, when we... Uh, oh, but see, the things that happen to us then you see are so individual. Like she's, you know, she's going to make this one work. I mean, Mozart remembered everything too. It's just unique because of the, the physical realities of singing that make it seem unusual. But uh, everything that seems very, very exact to us I had this, I didn't have that, I was this one, I was that one, I was so beautiful, I was crippled. It's very hard not to think that all of that matters, but all of it is really just a question of whether we remain entirely identified with the infinite or whether something happens that completely captures us and causes us to shift from the one into the many. And so when as we'll read in a few minutes, when we go into Nirvikalpa and we start trying to work all that karma out, none of the details of it actually matter anymore because when we were in it and the ego was defined, it was all so important. But now that we're out of it, we see that the only thing that ever mattered was whether we were in it or not. And now that we're not, it can just run its course. And where it had such intensity before, that intensity was just the mechanism by which we were captured. Here it looks, this is is Master's statement. We make the mistake of thinking that everything that happens to us personally concerns us personally. And this is exactly how he's describing it. It doesn't really. It happens to us because, well, there we are. But it doesn't really concern us. It's just energy flowing. And uh, I'm skipping way ahead, but it's all right. We can just collect this. In another sutra, they talk about the fact that you see you're also part of this other great flow of energy because nobody is separated one from another. So the fact that you desperately wanted to marry so-and-so and then you had these two children... And then, you know, one of them died and that really affected this one's life and then this one took this whole tract in their life and then they had all of this. 
you know, it's hard to say, well, I caused all of that. Even though I did something that seemed to start this chain of energy going, but everybody's karma was involved in that. And so it's really, as, the, as Patanjali describes it, it's just really the power of God flowing through all of us. It's that power of the Spirit just following its necessary trajectory in order to raise everybody's awareness and bring us back. And so part of our detachment from it is to realize that, for one thing, I couldn't have behaved differently because I really didn't have... It wasn't just about me. See, that's also part of the delusion that I did this and it affected me and then I did that. It has to just, the whole thing just has to play itself out. And sooner or later, and it also mentions that it's not possible for one individual to resolve all that karma because you give birth to a child and then the child does this and then that person does this. I mean, how can you, how can you settle all those debts? They're not even your debts. But from the perspective of, in, of infinity, and it says this in one of these sutras here, you watch that it all eventually resolves itself. And when you see that, your whole relationship to the part that you were witnessing um, shifts. And of course, we can't do that perfectly yet, but you can see that that's a very helpful principle, isn't it? To at least try to apply when uh, things happen? Yes. So we hear the story of a young man who has a couple of children and a wife and is beginning a career and then (coughs) he gets God-struck and he's just able to walk away from it all and just leave it and go off (coughs) free from his karma? Well, he's either... um, He's either creating a lot more (laughs) or he's finished with that. You, You just don't know. Sort of principle or context in which that um, is good, or that we could understand it from. Well, there's the story that Swami tells about the 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 man who always told God at any moment he was married, and um, but he's always said to God, "Whenever you call me to the Himalayas, I'll go." And then, as the story is told, his wife became pregnant. She gave birth to a child. She died in childbirth. And then just in that moment, however it came, the, the devotee felt that God was calling him to the Himalayas. And so he responded, you know, that I have promised you, Lord, that I would go when you called me. He said, but my human heart uh, has, you know, this is difficult for me to walk away from my newborn child. And so then she, he felt God say, um, hide behind a bush for a moment here. And so he hid behind the bush, the baby's crying, and a, a royal carriage comes by. The, the, the queen in the carriage hears the baby cry, stops the carriage, sees it lying next to its dead mother, and there's no one else around, picks up the child and takes it. And then the devotee says, why did I ever doubt? And then goes off with a free heart. The opposite story to that is what Swami Kriyananda tells with his own life, which is that he and his wife went to an, on pilgrimage, he came, this is a story from Brighu, but Swami tells it like this was really from his Brighu reading. He and his wife went on pilgrimage. They came to this ashram. Swamiji, in that lifetime, was so God-struck, to use the word I've never thought of before, 
And he sent his wife home and stayed in the ashram. And he was there for quite a long time and very devoted. And at a certain point, his wife, some years later, his wife came to the ashram and wanted to join him in the spiritual life. But Swamiji in that lifetime would have none of it. I'm a renunciate now. I don't want to have a wife anymore. And he sent her back. And she was, uh, but then it was, Bhrikkhu said, it was not the right thing to have done. And it caused an unsettled quality in his vrittis, which caused him, as a devotee in that life, to argue with his guru. The karma of having uh, rejected a, 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 a wife who wanted to be spiritual with him. She wasn't trying to pull him away from the path. She wanted to join him. He rejected her. It caused unsettledness in his vrittis. It caused him to argue with his guru. And so then he wants to go back and make it up to his wife. But he gets back and finds out she's died. At which point, in the Brigger reading, Swami died of a broken heart. Because now he had no guru and no wife. So, who can say? There's no, it's not the form, it's the freedom. Yeah. Uh, Chandra? <clears throat> if he had been able to just look at it like from the inside out, he wouldn't have needed to die of a broken heart. He could have, he could have... Who knows? There's I, no... Yeah. But, but, but what, what you were saying... If he'd been able to rise above it right. and just be detached and impersonal about it, but he'd already made several errors and they, they just, there was too much accumulated karma. He wasn't free, as simple as that. Rising above it was not an option. He was in the karma. I mean, it's just, it was a theory, of course. The theory always is you just turn to God and there's no karma, but there was. The way I'm understanding what you said was that if, when we look at things from the inside out, everything is on the outside. It, it, even yeah. our even our actions, our feelings, our thoughts. Yes, um, and that's they, and that's a helpful principle to keep in mind. But the fact of the matter is, he, well, he wasn't able to come close to applying the principle. It just wasn't. Yeah, well, yeah. I was just using that as a concrete example, but that was probably a bad thing to do. But it's confusing because the story is actually the opposite, which is he wasn't centered enough to know what he should do. He was caught by all of various whole a whole range of of. Uh, misunderstandings and all of those misunderstandings accumulated to cause this to happen and then you know then you get the chance to work it out it's not like you don't but yeah so it's and that's where this one woman said to me who came to our church for a while and uh, she was from a more traditional much more traditional context and, and uh, liked very much what we do, but you know, just wasn't quite sure about many things. And she asked me one day if she wasn't sure that Ananda believed in family values, you know, which is a way of saying marriage and all of, you know, just family values. You know what that means in this context. I said, well, we're certainly not against them. <laughs> but no, they're not the highest principle here. God, God realization is, and certainly... Most of the time, family values have to be honored, but not above God-realization. And you know, somehow she was sensing that, and that was making her very insecure, because that family values was 
closer to the top of the heap in her thinking. And who knows whether it was right or not. You don't, know, you don't know what people are balancing. And so you have to be very respectful until you can really understand. Yeah. For some people that response... I, I mentioned the, the case once of a friend of mine who... Um, uh, uh, a man that I, I knew of who had, had to um, deal with a severely disabled child. You know, a child that would never be able to function. So parenting was going to last as long as they lived and breathed. And how would you end up with that? Oh, imagine that you're a man of 35 and you've got a a few kids, but wow, I don't like being tied down like this. And you're off and you're gone. And you just abdicate, you've you've birthed the children, but you're not going to raise them. And then you're just going to go off and have a good time. Maybe you even have a reasonably good life after that. But where does that karma go? Oh, so you get to be like the parent of all parents and you never get away from this one. And depending on how much, and it's all these karmic debts. Now, I was going all the way to Nirvikalpa Samadhi where you're looking back and you realize that all of this was just a flow of energy and it really wasn't about me. But you don't get to Nirvikalpa Samadhi until you have balanced all these karmic debts. You've, you've been through the ups and downs and everything has just come down to zero. You know, all the, all the pleasures have been balanced by disappointments, all the fulfillments by the opposite, every success by a failure. It's so hard to really get that. It just comes down to zero. The whole thing comes down to zero because it never can last. I've heard that too a lot of times and I don't really grasp it because I don't want to. <laughs> but it's the truth. And you see it all around you. And you feel it in your own life. Nothing lasts. All is flux. Interesting, huh? Yes, uh, why don't you give Saranya that? So I understand that our future life is determined by the karma of this life well, or, or past lives, ways. whatever, all the karma. There's another sutra actually exactly about that which says, just since you ask, um, only, only those which are pre- for which present conditions are favorable bear karmic fruit in this incarnation. So, as, and they use the example, if you drowned, drowned someone or something like that, but you spend your whole lifetime in a desert, you're never going to get to work out that karma. You have to wait till you're born by the sea. <laughs> uh-huh, go ahead. But I'd heard sometime that... Um, in going into the next incarnation, that there's sort of a, an agreement between the soul and God about what lessons you need to learn. Is there something that happens, is there some way that, um, that whatever happens in the next lifetime is planned to teach you a lesson, or is that just the natural part of karma? Well, there's, there's certain books that talk about the astral world. Um, there was a, a, some books, I can't remember the name of them, which I, I'm glad I can't remember because I don't want to say what they were. I thought they were great. <laughs> we all thought they were great books. And we shared them with Swami. We did that thing where you say, oh, Swami, this is so good, you know. And he says, no, it's not. <laughs> and what he didn't like about it, which he said was invalid about it, was it was all very much on the conscious intellectual level. So we go up into the astral world and we, you know, go to the library and we talk to our professor and we review our past events and we, you know, talk about the merits of this one and the merits of that. I said, it's, he said, it's, it, it, that's, that's just this, this world, you know, using the brain and reason like that. It's, 
It's far more subtle and it's far less about what you can think. So when people talk, people often when people start talking in this, this certain way about your pre-birth agreements, they're really projecting a sitting in a library talking to a professor and they give you lots of options and you choose and, and it's, it's all as if the ego has the foggiest idea what it really needs. And that's a very pleasant thought. We like that. We like to think that the ego can just sit around and make these decisions. But it's... Now, I can't actually answer you as to how it actually goes. I, I tend to think of it in the story that you've heard me tell many times is the one where you resolve to stay home and meditate for the evening, but then you get a little hungry and there's not that much in the refrigerator, so you decide to go down to the pizza place. Or more, you're just, you know, you've decided to meditate, but suddenly you, you're going outside to get pizza instead. And, and oftentimes you don't exactly remember when you made those decisions. It's just something suddenly compels you. And then when you're out on the sidewalk, you meet a friend, and that friend takes you to the movie. And then finally you get all the way back home and you remember what you had planned to do, but you forgot. I sort of feel like you're hanging out in the astral world and everything is great, but something just starts, it, it just comes due. Things shift in this way and all of a sudden you're just pulled in a direction. And the... the agreement that you've made with God is the fact that these vibrations are the right vibrations for you. And what, what's trying to be said there is that, the, that it's always a match. That what's going to happen to you is always the result of the, of it's the appropriate response to your vibrations. But that you would consciously be able to analyze that and figure that out. This is, um, Bajrang used to work with a lot of the children in our community and he was, he was kind of the, the friendly uncle to a lot of kids. It was a, he, he did wonderful work for many, many years, still does, but um, he had many children like that. And, and the kids a lot, because it was Ananda, when the children would go through the phase of, you know, you're terrible, you're a terrible parent, I don't really like you at all, Ananda parents had the opportunity to say to their children, not my fault, you chose me. <laughs> and so sometimes they'd go to Bajrang and say, I did not. <laughs> I would never have chosen that one, you know, just in that kind of rebellion. And then Bajram brings the question to Swami, what am I supposed to say? You know, because, and then Swami said something interesting. He said, well, you don't necessarily choose every detail. You, you'll be pulled by one particular aspect of it, and that will pull you into the whole situation. So it isn't like every single one of those was exactly tailored for you. It's that for example, you may be drawn into a family because you have a very close tie with the mother, but not particularly the father. You know, that the, the mother draws you, and I think of it as circles like that uh, coincide, whatever you call them, ten, ten, tangential, or whatever that word is, where they go, they, they, they don't, they're not a complete overlay, but they're like this. So this may be your mother's ring, this is your ring, you overlay like this, but she's also got all this ring, which brings in your siblings and your grandmother and your father, which may or may not relate to you. The two of you may connect right here. So yes, it all comes with her, but it doesn't mean that you have a, a deep tie with all of it. You, or you may have just chosen it because it puts you in California where you always wanted to live. Or, as Swami said, you... Uh, you're a devotee, and you're just going to take a body where you can get it because your real life is with your spiritual family. 
So you just, there was enough compatibility that you took that. Um, so all of this is, quote, the agreement, but you're not going to be able to look at it with your mind necessarily and see how every piece of it works. You have to just look at the whole flow. And oftentimes you have to ask the question, what is the overall consequence of this circumstance? You know, just what is the overall consequence of this? And rather than what is this and little thing and this little thing and this little thing. And that's more what it's about. I think there is the idea that floats around that we reincarnate in a perfectly designed absolute match for us. In fact, we even, I think you earlier tonight even talked about, um, I don't know, our chakras or energy patterns or whatever, manifesting the body that we come into. But if we, as Master said, we even compete for certain yes, exactly. bodies I love that one, with right? others, that doesn't seem to be the <laughs> no, case it doesn't. completely. That's why Swami talked about it more as an overall flow rather than absolutely every single detail. That, but that, does, that means that all those details, though, are correct because the overall flow is correct. And they, they all come along with it. And, I mean, the perfection of it is, and this is, an, I'm, this is another way to say it, the perfection of it is, is that everything gives us the same opportunity. All karma is generic. Everything gives us the same opportunity to either remain centered in God consciousness or lose our centeredness. So it's, per, it's perfect in that sense. And, and I don't know how to make it any finer than that. I, I, Swami's answer was the best answer that I know you don't really analyze it and pick up every detail. But on the other hand, how could it not be exactly what it means to be? If you're drawn to that mother and that mother brings all that father and so on like that, where would it break? Where would the, where would the web and warp and woof of the fabric break? Every thread is connected. It's just that in, I think this would be one of the ways to think about it. In each incarnation, we have certain priorities. And so the priority of a certain incarnation may be being with that mother and all the rest of the stuff is part of being with that mother but it's it's a secondary karma so to speak and you don't have to give everything equal weight Uh, you just have to look at where the overall flow is taking you and you can tell in yourself you know some karmas are just bigger than others yeah the degree that one consider uh oh this one was a mistake there's never a mistake There's no such thing as a mistake. It's a vibratory universe and the vibrations match. Mistake, I mean, what could I have been thinking? (laughs) Which I think is really a very real thought, meaning there was a mistake in my thinking. And so that's a very real question. Why, why, Why would I have thought this was a good idea? What am I here to learn, in other words? What is it that I didn't know that caused me to have to reincarnate in this particular situation? That, I think, is where my question is coming from. Does, because the, the part of the soul that is making mistakes and earning new karma is... The part of the soul. Well, I mean, well, let me... Yes. Is, uh-huh. I, okay. Uh-huh. Is not the wise part. Right. The wise, okay, so the wise part would know what lessons I needed next and how best to but step... See, the whole way you're thinking about it is, is, is what's confusing you. Is that it, you can't line it up like that. That's what I'm saying, that that doesn't make sense to me. Right. That there, is, there can't be a wise part that knows what should be the best. That's why I can't see how any part of it would say, well, this is the lesson I need to learn and let me choose this situation because the main part of me is in delusion. 
I, I the, just, I think we're just, I think we're going to take a break. <laughs> this is an example of the folly of too much analysis. Yes, uh, it is. But I have, to, I, have to, I have to find a way to pull, pull out something because that is what the problem is. Somehow our whole, we're picking it up from the wrong string. So I'm going to just, I'm literally, let's take a break and then see where, where we need to go after that. Maybe just, you know. Oh my goodness, look at that. It's time for a break. <laughs> Part of the answer to what uh, Saranya was saying, and um, she straightened out a little of the confusion during the break, and I'm just going to leave you all with that without explaining that to you. But part of the confusion was this, and I remember this very specifically. This woman came to Swamiji. She was in this really horrible relationship that was just a, a nightmare. But she was nervous to break it off because she had this superstitious idea that maybe he was the destined one. And um, Swami doesn't usually go into, he doesn't buy into that kind of superstition all that much. And he gave her pretty practical advice. But after she left, he had, I was in the room, he turned to me and he said, she has so many lessons to learn, she could learn them with any number of people. He said, you have to be highly advanced before your karma becomes that specific. You know that only this and only that will work. <clears throat> so part of what's happening is, you know, what's why we just don't choose this and choose that. It's like we're, we have a general, a lot of general things that we have to learn. And we can be learning them in all sorts of ways because we just haven't narrowed the options down that much. We have too much left. By the time you have so little left, then... Every little specific action has only, there's only one way to go with it. But for the majority of people, you make a general decision and then you have the opportunity in the whole circumstance to respond and work out something in, in one way or another. And that's part of it. It just, we're not so like, I can only be with this one and this one has to be my sibling and my room has to be pink and my hair has to be this color. No, friends. Your hair could be purple or orange and you could be black, white, or red and you know you could have siblings or not siblings. It's just like there's a lot of lessons here. Just take your pick. And that's where I think the um, getting into the womb or not when you're trying to get into the womb because it comes here where it says, let's see, where does it say? So this is when I was reading number 4.8. Of ego-motivated acts, only those vasanas subconscious impressions for which present conditions are favorable bear karmic fruit in that particular incarnation. So it's just... It's, it, now, how, how we resolve all these things, the mind wants to grab a kind of either-or. But if it's perfect, how could it be that one and not this one? Well, it didn't turn out to be that one. It turned out to be this one. And you can't analyze it and have it make sense because it's not happening on that level. Yes, and uh, where's the microphone? Okay. Uh-huh. It's uh, more, really more about energy than form to oversimplify, I guess. It's to a certain extent more about energy than form, exactly, and about consciousness. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it this way, but I'm wondering if when you're saying, you know, you have to be highly advanced before specific experiences are needed. Before your karma narrows down and only so specifically that there really is one destined made for you or one... Right. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was wondering if that applies to when people are searching spiritually. They're not ready for a guru yet, but any number of things could help them. They can learn their lessons, and they feel genuinely, 
you know, this book or this teacher, they're really getting the lessons they feel like they need. Exactly. Um, yeah, and they, they need to keep going sincerely like that. Certain point when you got to have a guru. <laughs> like well, there's a certain point when you have the capacity to have a guru, and you have. I mean, you just merely to just sort of say, "Oh, I think I'll just have a guru." You know, it's there has to be. It's much deeper than that. And as Swami said, you can uh, declare yourself saved, but Jesus also has to agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's the joke Master used to enjoy telling about Billy Sunday getting up to the pearly gates and St. Peter not finding his list on the name of entrance anywhere. And Billy Sunday was a big evangelist at the time. He said, but what about all those people I sent to heaven? St. Peter said, well, you might have sent them, but none of them arrived. (laughs) Okay, so shall we progress? We've sort of skipped around a little bit. but So number four, four. Once a great yogi has attained Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, his enlightened consciousness can produce in visions several of his past memories together. And then Swami Jesus says, if, if I hadn't, um, if, Swami says, if, if my guru had not explained this, I would not have known what this meant. And he says, he can produce in visions several past ego identities at a time and realize all of them simultaneously as nothing but expressions of God not the activities of his ego here on earth. Thus he can work through the karma of many past lives in a single meditation. Oh, that's how they do it. My, yeah, my, my comment was, wow. <laughs> it's, it, this is, uh, but also this is like the post-Nirbhakalpa Samadhi work, which is now you're a Jivan Mukta, but there's still all this un- karma that isn't finished, and you have to go through, as, as Swami has told us many times, you have to see each of those incarnations and to our amusement, he always talks about John Smith is a pirate, why, why you're always a pirate in his story, but you are a pirate. And then you have to see that when I seem to have acted as a pirate, it was never I who was doing it, it was just the power of God, and you have to let go. So apparently you can do more than one at a time. I, this is all just like, wow, very interesting. He explains this again in the Gita commentary, and this is the, that was the concept, precisely this concept, in the Gita commentary where I said, this doesn't apply to very many. And Swami said, yes, but those to whom it does apply, it will be very helpful. And you can, you can sort of, just as we grope our way now, I mean, everything is directional, and everything that we're doing now is a shadow of what we do later, just as we grope our way now, what should I be working on? How should I be doing it? What is the right direction for me now? You know, now that I've understood this, where do I go from here? So you can see people attaining very great states of consciousness and still, where do I go from here? What exactly do I do? And then those who are already free, help them to go through those last stages. I quoted earlier in some earlier uh, session here, about how Master wrote to Rajasi a letter and basically said, keep on exploring. You know, now that you've reached this state, there are, there are all these different other things that you can do. And he encouraged him to keep doing it. And probably those were all tied to this sort of thing, which is releasing all this different karma. And when Lahiri Mahashaya's incarnation was all about meditating, and he wrote... Um, various diaries and some of those have been published in a book it's it's very difficult 
book to follow because you can't really tell what is the editor and what is Lahiri, and it's, it's, it's a confusing book. So I, I, you're welcome to try it. I don't even remember the name of it. But what I got from that book was that book is about what you do when you're a highly advanced meditating yogi. And that was what Lahiri was doing. He was going through all the different possi- uh, permutations of what you do as a highly advanced meditating yogi and laying out a diagram for it. That diagram has not yet been published in a way that is easy for the average person to understand, but gee, maybe there's a reason for that. You know, maybe it's just, maybe, well, or maybe it was crystal clear and it's just that I couldn't receive it. I'll take that one too. But it's, it's there because that's a whole other realm of teaching that just isn't the one that's certainly not mine and not most of ours yet for many reasons, starting with the fact of this word nirvikalpa samadhi, um, which is lacking. But the other was also, in just a simpler way, is what Swamiji said, that's not our life this time. You know, we're here to make Master's mission happen. And so our, our greatest joy comes from serving that work. And the example of our spiritual father here is serving that work. Lahiri's example was sitting there meditating, but Swami Kriyananda's example is carrying out this Dwapara Yuga mission and giving our lives to, to establishing it. So quite obviously, that is incompatible with a life that's entirely dedicated to sitting and meditating. And Swami himself said that Master said to him, basically, you're just, you know, it's not going to come to you. You're not going to have those. He told him this was his last life. You'll be liberated in this lifetime, but you're not going to be able to sit there and just meditate because it's not just not what you were born to do. So it, it, you have to flow with all of this in, in its own way. In other words, there was another piece there. Let me, let me just think about where that was. So he's talking about... Um, well, I lost it. Tricia, microphone. I keep going back to the last sentence in 4.4. Mm-hmm. Because I think of Nirbhikalpa Samadhi as somebody who's pretty much finished up their karma. No. But, but they don't come back from... They, they don't have to reincarnate. They're jivan mukta, which is to say that there's no ego to which the karma can attach. Go ahead. Work out karma. Um, it, it ha- it, it's confusing. Work it out. I think work out is the confusing word, but go ahead. Yeah, that, what that's what's that's confusing me because word. everything else he says pretty much seems to me to paraphrase what the verse says, and then that last sentence seems to be a bit of an add-on with, because the word work on. Thus he can work through the karma work of through. past lives in a single meditation. But what he's working through is to realize all of them simultaneously is nothing but expressions of God and the activities of his ego, and not the activities of his ego here on earth. So working through means to dissolve the last sense of, of relationship to them and see that they bear, bear no relationship to him. It's not working through in the sense of unlearned lessons. Okay. Okay. That, so it, it, it is semantics. Language is limited. Fair enough, but very, very fair enough. Okay, any other questions? Four five. Although the actions of those many bodies may differ widely, I love that, his original chitta, or primordial feeling, remains the same. 
And that, that means that we were always ourself. And that, that spark of... Because chitta is the fundamental nature of consciousness. That's, that's the fundamental essence of who we are. And it doesn't change from incarnation to incarnation. It's, it's exactly, if you think of the wheel, the spokes of the wheel and the center of the wheel, that the center of the wheel may extend its energy out in all those spokes, but it's still always exactly the center of the wheel. It, it never shifts its position or its reality. Yes? sounds like a different use of the word chitta. I, I'm comparing it to um, the Mon Buddha e Ankara chitta story. And chitta is the bit that comes last. That's the emotional feeling. That's like how happy I am to see my horse in that, you know, in but that example. The, so, so how is, so that sounds like the tip of the wave, no, whereas it sounds I, like they're using chitta to mean the, well, it's the opposite, the opposite see. end. Right. So how do you reconcile these two? Chitta itself. This is this is how it, it's explained again, and I, you know, I'm a little out of my depth here. Um, what the point of chitta is that uh, sat chitta ananda, ever existing, you know, ever conscious, ever new joy. That there is a quality to our consciousness, and that fundamental quality is bliss. That the, the pure pure chitta is pure bliss, but then we distort that. And it becomes pleasure and desire and attachment and all of these things. So in that progression, when chitta gets involved, when feeling the feeling nature aspect of ourself gets involved and it moves away from its pure unconditioned bliss, that's when delusion sets in. And therefore the opposite of that is freedom is when that, that feeling is withdrawn from all of that commitment to the ephemeral world and it goes back to rest and its pure nature is bliss. So it's the same word, but it's the opposite side of it. So in this sutra, is, is it correct to substitute in Satchitananda for chitta? Well, it's original. No, because he's being very, very specific about it. So I mean, I wouldn't be qualified to say one way or another. His original uh, bliss consciousness is what I would say. Differ widely, his original bliss consciousness or primordial feeling, which is fundamental feeling, remains the same. Even though... The actions of these many bodies may differ widely. It's always been the same spark of divinity. And that spark of divinity has never been any different. It was the little piece of the infinite that was tossed out there to be you. And it has never changed. It's never been affected. Nothing is. It's the little bit of gold, pure gold, at the heart of everything. And no matter how complicated the covering got, it was never affected and never any different. The animating energy at the center. Okay, because we, we, it's hard for us to believe that we think that somehow all this stuff has affected us personally, all this stuff that's happened to us. <laughs> this is this little thing I found from Swami where he said, or Master, we spend all our time uh, feeding and taking care of that which is not us, which is the body and the ego. <laughs> you know, it's just like we're, we're, we're taking care of a rhododendron and we think it's us. It isn't. <laughs> so what's always, but what is us is that whatever he calls it, original chitta, that piece of divinity in the center, no matter how diverse. And that's what we realize sitting there in Nirvikalpa. We start manifesting all these things, and that's how we get free of it, because we just realize, oh, but there's never been any, the only part of this that was actually me, that, that I actually was, was this vibration of bliss. That's all that I've ever been. And the fact that I thought I was all these things, it, they, it never happened. It just was an illusion. It's 
It's like if you're walking in a forest and you see a stick and you think it's a snake and you have this huge experience because you think there's a snake and then you finally get close enough to it to see that it was a stick. You had the experience. You were scared to death. You got everybody up there. You, you know, you have a machete in your hand. You've got the whole village all there. But it wasn't. It was only ever a stick. Even though this gigantic event happened, it never happened because it was always just a stick. And no matter how much you try to say that there was a, an actual thing that happened, it never really happened. You just reacted to the stick. There you have it. And it's a, and that must be fun. <laughs> must be really fun, the tiny bubble of laughter. Let's see. I keep, I keep losing thoughts today. I have too many in my head. Okay. Oh, I remember. There was a, a moment in time, and this was in the 70s, with Swami Kriyananda when the whole community could fit into the dome that Crystal Hermitage, and it was, the dome was only half the size, well, all the community that was in tune with Swami Kriyananda. There were actually some people out there. There were, some, there were others. There were some Philistines out there, but the real group was right here. And uh, he just, I, I don't remember the satsang, but I remember the vibration. It was very, 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 very elevated. And afterwards, he looked at our little crowd there and said, uh, when you finally achieve enlightenment, he said, you look back over all the incarnations and the only thing that you, you see is those moments when you touch divinity. And you realize that those, that was all that ever happened and that all the rest of it was just an illusion. And, and, and he was looking at it. And I had that strong feeling, we're going to remember this night. Because <laughs> this was a night when we, we really were in touch with truth. And so when everything else fades away, this will remain. And that's, you know, that's among other reasons why the definition whenever I've been asked of the role that I've had all this time, what do you do when you're you know, helping to develop a colony? You just work as hard as you can to create moments of inspiration. And you try to just crowd them together. <laughs> because that's all that's ever happening. Everything else is really just to support that. And that inspiration may come because people are serving or because we're, we're together, but mostly it's really those deep moments. That's why we put so much energy into our music and our services and all of that. Because every time we actually touch divinity, then something has actually happened. And if we can string enough of those together, then everybody just goes where they're trying to go. Uh, just because I'm talking like this, I was reading Swami's a part today about when he was talking about the early 70s at Ananda, and, uh, Ananda Village. And he was talking about how the, there were so many people there who just really were not destined to stay. And they used to have meetings and they were doing this and that. And he said they used to get together and they were zoning the community and they were talking about this. And he said, I just let them do whatever they wanted because the only thing I was concerned about at that point, he said, was the spirit of discipleship. He said, because if I could build this, he, if he could build the spirit of discipleship among those who were receptive to that, that was the community. And they could put the buildings anywhere they wanted to because it just didn't make any difference. But if he got the spirit of discipleship built, then we would have a community. It's just so obvious, isn't it, when you think about it. And he said, there's many ways to do things in an external way, but if the spirit is right, whatever, whatever other ways are chosen will be fine. If the spirit is wrong, it'll... Nothing will ever succeed.
Okay. So, there we, so number four, six. Although in those meditations he perceives many personalities, he himself remains untouched by any latent impression of past karma from those lives and by any past craving and attachment. In his Nirbhakalpa state, he can observe the actions of his past lives without being even slightly affected by them. So I guess that's the working out of it, Tricia, is that he can just watch them and they don't touch him at all. It's just perfect freedom from them. He just lets them go. The entire reactive process is neutralized, I wrote. Again, I thought this one is a really interesting one to bring in the present. You know, just why are we reacting? I mean, I know why I react. I have a lot of reasons for reacting. <laughs> but to at least uh, know directionally. Because it's, it's one thing, this is, this is a, a distinction in my life that I've always found very helpful. You have to be authentic. It's very important to be authentic because you don't get anywhere, as I put it, trying to work out someone else's karma because it looks easier. <laughs> you have to actually be moving from where you're standing. As Swami said, you have to make your... Your sainthood comes right out of the material that you've already got. And so you have to really work with it. And if you're hurt, you're hurt. You can't just pretend that you're not. But, and, and our vrittis, the, the compelling magnetism of all that karma that we have built up, um, causes us to respond. You know, we have been had disappointments in many different lifetimes and so we get another disappointment and it's not merely that disappointment but it's the 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 um the vacuum under that disappointment that pushes you all the way through and so we can't just say I shouldn't feel this way because if we do we do and uh it was interesting to me I was reading also today about Swami talking about when he when uh, when he got thrown out of SRF. And the year in India between the time he got the land in India, the SRF board of directors rejected it. And as Swami said, he just, you know, was out of favor. And everything that he did met with enormous criticism and rejection. And he, he talked about a certain letter that he got. And he used the phrase, he said, I wept buckets, was what he said. You know, and you think of Swamiji being so courageous and strong, but it was very touching because suddenly I just pictured that, you know, just weeping and just, you know, frustration and despair because he just didn't know what... Oh, wow. So, so even though victory eventually comes, that's what it, it said to me, victory eventually comes, the road to that victory is not necessarily uh, paved, uh, just effortless. So the picture that you have to have in your mind, and this is where these... Uh, teachings are so valuable, and all of these stories of Swami's life where you, you know, I mean, wept buckets is a, a common phrase, but what a thing for him to say. I mean, well, you know, what is he telling us? He's telling us that he triumphed, but he suffered. And that's why great souls incarnate, because they do participate. It, 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 it wounded his heart, and his response was not, oh, sure, just fine. His response was, Weeping buckets. He had the right attitude. He did say, whatever you want. But the cost to him was extremely deep and extremely real. So, in my own mind, I have these words. And the words are, you know, there are many actions and attitudes that I commit. Because I can't help myself. 
and then there are the ones I am committed to. And so I may be committing many actions, but I'm not committed to them because I can tell the difference between who I want to be and who I am. But I can also tell who I am. Because if you can't tell who you are, you're, it's, you, you have a lot of trouble. Now, it's, these, are, these are very challenging to be able to just stand in your present reality, know that you have another one. But uh, just somehow with Swamiji, I've more recently appreciated the process. When I was with him, especially in those early years, I didn't cognize sufficiently how, how real his life was. I, I, I made it a little bit two-dimensional, and I wasn't as good a friend to him. About 15 or 20 years into it, I got it. And I became, as I put it to him, a better friend to you because I see now what's really more going on. But at the beginning, I just couldn't, I just couldn't cognize that he was um, completely participating even though I could also feel that he was way beyond it. It's from the center of the wheel you can go all the way out. But the question is whether you have defined yourself by the edge or by the center. Even if you've defined yourself by the center, you may still go all the way out. That's why you, have to, you just have to be very, very genuine and not have an idea in your mind of how I'm supposed to behave, but have an awareness of, of what is the natural response for me now. Okay? That might be the end of the story. All right? If you have any questions, we'll take them up next week. So we got only half as far as I wanted to, but we'll make it still. So t- today we did from 4-2 through 4-6.